Let's begin with civil society, Helen. Is that a convincing view? Global civil society is, I think, much more of a normative idea rather than an empirical one. What we see in the cases that we use in part three, particularly the debt campaign case, civil society in each individual state, we find, came together and communicated and worked together with other civil societies in other states. But to say that this is a global civil society, I think, is a bit of a stretch. We do find that borders in some senses can be more permeable and more porous because of technology, yet that does not necessarily correspond with the empirical coordination and political mobilization that happened within each state. And the targets of those states may have been international actors like the World Bank, like the IMF, like other states, more powerful states. However, to, to actually call that a global civil society and to say that a global civil society is challenging world order or challenging states in world order is, I think, quite optimistic and much more normative than empirical. So your evaluation of the civil society case study is that while many commentators might wish to see that kind of global civil society emerge, your evaluation of instances like the, uh, the debt reduction campaigns are that that has to be treated with some scepticism as a description of what's currently in existence. Absolutely. And if you if you look at the not just the Jubilee 2000 debt cancellation campaigns, but the Make Poverty History campaign in 2005, the focal point of all of the campaigners was the G8, the G8 governments, the G8 heads of state. Let's look at the second case study then, which is the financial sector. And here again, particularly in the light of the kind of financial crises that hit in 2008, arguably we saw the kind of economic challenge to states that people like Susan Strange predicted when she argued that states were simply not up to the job of regulating what she called mad money. Does this show a kind of challenge to the state-based international order of the kind that's been put forward by the Global Network Society thesis and its like? Well, I certainly think it shows a challenge to states. I don't know if it shows a challenge to the state order. I think what we've seen is a volatile system set up interconnected between different financial systems throughout the world. One thing that has been quite interesting in that, given Strange's statement of states not being up to the job, it has been up to the states, the national governments and central banks to to regulate and to bail out banks that have gone bankrupt or are in financial crises. So it's it's a paradox that, you know, given how networked the financial systems are, and we do see this, this runoff of, you know, the American markets leading other markets into, into disarray, the paradox within that is that it is up to states to clean up. Simon, do you want to come in here? Yes, I think that's right. And I think it's interesting that I think we need to distinguish between things that states may or may not be able to do. Who knows what the outcome of the financial crisis will be? States may not have any simple solutions to that. 
But that's not really a challenge to a state-based order. There's lots of things that states haven't got answers to that we might wish they had answers to. And the fact they don't or may not have answers is not in itself a challenge to the state-based order. And I do think it is striking that when this networked system came into crisis, immediately all the powerful states started to act and indeed have started to act in a quite coordinated manner. So it's one of those cases where if you were to extrapolate on the basis of the international financial system before the crisis, you might think this is a networked order, which is in some sense superseding states. But as soon as things go wrong, it begins to look like something we're very familiar with, which is states stepping in to try and control crises, states trying to cooperate together to sort out international problems. And I think the other point to come out of that is the danger of trying to extrapolate in a kind of linear way from a particular trend at a particular time. And what we're seeing now just doesn't fit that kind of extrapolation. So from that point of view, the crisis, in a sense, brings to the fore the actors and the political structures that are most important. It highlights their importance and their continuing relevance. Arguably so, yeah. Are we right to be similarly sceptical about the importance of networks within military affairs? I think the answer to that depends on what aspects of military affairs you're looking at. On the one hand, we talk in part three about the revolution in military affairs and networked forms of war fighting. At that level, networks are being used to talk about and to explain aspects of the ways in which the most advanced state, militarily speaking, fights wars within a given theatre. So their networks are forms of organisation, forms of tactics within what is still clearly a very state-based strategy of war. So I don't think one could make any very ambitious claims about networked forms of warfare on the basis of that. It is still the United States and its allies fighting wars, but just fighting them in technologically very advanced ways. But there's no sense in which those technological networks mean that the United States is losing the ability to control the fighting of its wars. If anything, it's increasing the ability to control its wars. On the other hand, if we're talking about networks of non-state actors, of international terrorist groups, for example, or irregular forms of guerrilla warfare networked from one country to another in which the agents that are trying to deploy force and to fight are not state-based actors, then clearly that is a challenge, not to just to the authority of the states that they may be fighting, but also to the authority of the state system. So that if that kind of non-state form of violent activity were to extend, that would be a challenge to the state and state systems monopoly over the means of violence. And so that form of networked violence clearly would be a challenge to the state order and is indeed, of course, seen as a challenge to the state order by states. And there again, the issue of how far you can extrapolate from current trends is is the tricky thing to judge because it's very difficult to tell right now how far that's going to be an increasing challenge to states or whether it's something that states will respond to and help to suppress. Yes, I think that's right. And I don't think we are in any better position now than we were in September 2001 to know whether, for example, the actions of al-Qaeda, do they represent 
the beginnings of a fundamental shift in the nature of international order or do they represent a temporary aberration and where are we heading? Are we heading towards more of that or are we heading towards a period where states will regain the initiative vis-a-vis non-state actors? It seems to me we just it's far too early to know where we are on that. Okay, I think in bringing this discussion to a conclusion, there's a couple of things that we might note. Firstly, hopefully this discussion has highlighted the usefulness of thinking about particular sectors of international order and what kind of purchase and what kind of influence they have on international order as a whole. And we've explored this particularly by looking at the influence of technology and networks and how far that has helped to influence the political sector of international order, as well as some arguments about how far it itself forms the basis of different conceptualizations of international order. Certainly for some, the kinds of trends and examples that we've touched on can fit fairly easily within existing models of international order, whether they be realist, liberal or Marxist, in different ways. And for others, it means thinking about international order in a much more radically different way of the kind suggested by Castells. I think two words of caution are worth taking away from this discussion. One is to be careful about extrapolating from what seem like very prominent or very important current trends and assuming that that will continue kind of unchecked into the future. So the emergence of network-based, internet-based campaigns appears as something very new, but how important that is in the future needs to be carefully judged. And the second is to judge some of the more general claims, some of the broad assertions about the nature of international order, some of the broad claims about the directions of change, very carefully in relation to some of the empirical evidence. And that's one of the things that part three tries to do, to evaluate claims such as the Global Network Society thesis by looking in quite careful detail at some of the empirical examples to see how far that is borne out in reality. So hopefully that provides us with a good basis to think about change and transformation in international order. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.